welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, I used to think of myself as a culture critic. I'm not really sure what I am anymore. I certainly enjoy uh, writing about culture as well as writing about uh, meditation and ideas and history and all sorts of uh, material. But for a long time, when I uh, when I started to be a uh, a writer and a, a kind of pu- uh, you know public uh, raconteur of my experiences and ideas, I very much thought of myself as a culture critic. And it's not really clear to me exactly what cultural criticism is anymore. Uh, you know, like so many things, the internet has sort of dissolved boundaries, uh, uh, spread things so thin and um, so scrambled the relationship of critic to reader that I can no longer really use any of my existing maps and models to, to navigate it and even to sort of determine what is cultural criticism. Is it is it a tweet? Is it a YouTube video that kind of remixes some other YouTube video that's remixing some other YouTube video in this sort of endless, uh, you know, snake eating its tail kind of process. And and then the kinds of criticism that I think of as being uh, clearly cultural criticism are sort of, they're still kind of ensconced in this uh, il- uh, quasi-elite sort of zone where like, yes, you know that a book review in the New Yorker magazine is cultural criticism with capital C's, but the kind that I was always interested in was much more uh, feral, uh, exploratory, ambiguous, and scrambling of uh, traditional categories of of high and low. Uh, so I'm very happy that today we're talking to a cultural critic, one of my favorite cultural <laughs> critics, who has kept the flag flying all these years, who I you know, I met way back uh, in the day in the 90s when we were both writing about uh, technology in the future and fringe culture uh, and have enjoyed uh, uh, knowing ever since. <clears throat> I'm speaking of uh, Mark Derry, uh, whose earlier books are hardcore, intense, richly written and uh, very uh, uh, pungently thought through forms of cultural criticism in the broad sense, looking not just at obvious objects of culture like books and records and, you know, fashions, but really looking at all of the forms of the strange anthropology of uh, of modernity, uh, per- with a particular emphasis on uh, the macabre, the excessive, the transgressive, uh, and, and material that he both uh, celebrated and enjoyed for its potency, but also was quite willing to, um, uh, you know, uh, c- constrain or reframe in light of the various ways that uh, hipsters and uh, other sort of miscreants have appropriated these positions or or taken these positions. So not a not a not a uh, a, a fool by any stretch of the imagination. And the, for the last seven years, that's right, I said seven years. Uh, he's been working on a biography of Edward Gorey, which I had to say was slightly surprising uh, because uh, uh, while you know Derry can roam very widely, and, and I always learn something uh, from his range of references and allusions uh, ac- across the, you know, the, the fields of, uh, of, of cultural production. Um, I, I am myself not a huge gory file. Like, 
I like it. I I've read it. It's it's cool. But I, it, that that fandom obsessive quality, which happens to many of us around all sorts of things, but certainly around gory. I know some gory files who have you know rich collections and are you know can become sort of sort of uh, drooling over you know the opportunity for new material. Uh, you know, so I know it's a real thing, and it's it's just not my it just didn't really quite quite work for me. Although I have to admit, reading uh, uh, Mark's biography, uh, "Born to Be Posthumous: The Eccentric Life and Mysterious Genius of Edward Gorey," made me more of a fan. Uh, partly because I learned more about the guy, but I also kind of discovered ways of uh, of thinking about the work that drew me in deeper. And I also uh, found out about. Uh, um, particular pieces that he had done, particularly books that he had done that I didn't know about that were really struck my fancy. But nonetheless, I was still a little surprised that Mark Derry would be able to, would, would, would dive so deeply and for so long um, in this particular matter. So I told Mark before we were doing this show, I was saying, look, I, you know, I'm interested in Edward Gorey, but I'm more interested in, in why you are interested in Mar in, in Edward Gorey because uh, I'm I'm always uh, fascinated to follow Derry where he goes. And uh, so, with that, Mark, thanks uh, for joining me on Expanding Mind. Well, it is my unalloyed pleasure, Eric, and um, uh, to uh, filch a phrase from or a one-line uh, joke from uh, the late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, thank you for that suspiciously begrudging introduction. <laughs> <laughs> or, or as uh, my alternate and uh, shopworn witticism when I'm the subject of lengthy and um, uh, almost embarrassingly effusive introductions is, uh, thank you for that uh, introduction calculated to kill a man with performance anxiety. <laughs> I will now uh, slink off stage uh, mute and uh, mortified. Uh, for you're, fear you're not that the anything, you're, you're not the first anything one. Anything I might say will not live up to my press, and well, I count but, myself ahead in the game. No, no, you you have the you have my my favorite gift of gab. I mean, I I think of myself as a as a as a fairly flowing. Uh, interlocutor, but uh, your your uh, your speech acts are marvelous, and uh, I'm I'm sure you'll you will rise to the occasion. Although I have gotten grief before about the excessively effusive introduction, and it's kind of because I'm lazy because I really could just start a conversation and then later on you know yeah. record the introduction and then put it on which i probably should do because sometimes it, it ends up being kind of <laughs> annoying people are like oh god do you have to say that and you're like oh i'm sorry so and i know that's sort of more profile i'm trying to get more like you know kind of technically sophisticated with this thing but i'm still motivated by the model of like late night you know radio call in radio where it's sort of sloppy and unformed yeah uh, but uh, but i'm i'm being you know i'm kind of being dragged kicking and screaming into the uh you know the uh, the high quality, high tech. Uh, you know uh, versions of the podcast. People go, oh, I don't want to listen to your podcast because, and it makes sense though because people have these delicate little little pods in their ears, and mm -hmm. if you have any sort of uh, distortion or uh, uh, too much sloppiness, they're like, get it out of my brain. So, fair enough. Well, well, it it's interesting you seize on the question of the gift gift of gab, um, because uh, people who like my writing um, often delight in um, the use of obscure um, or arcane vocabulary, and, and never just for the sake of um, 
sort of flashing my vocabulary around, but because it seems like the best word for the job. It is true that I do mentally archive odd words. For example, on the subject of the gift of gab, I've only just discovered a delicious, I believe, Victorianism, which is the word dipnosophy, D. E-I-P-N-O-S-O-P-H-Y, dipnosophy, and which is debate or small talk at the specifically at the dinner table. <laughs> but and, and one who's a dipnosophist is uh, well-skilled, you know, masterful in the art of dinner table badinage or um, slinging uh, uh, you know, witty repartee or bon mot, which is well and truly a dying art these days um, when people are buried nose down in their cell phones everywhere you go. And that and that's a tedious truism that pe- only people our age seem very vexed about. But it's quite odd that um, I think it was The Atlantic recently wrote a, ran a piece about the ascent of the podcast, and it seem, it does seem counterintuitive to me that at a moment when the art of conversation, specifically dinner table conversation, which was so generative of avant-garde troublemaking throughout the 20th century. I mean, what, you know, so many artistic revolutions have been born at uh, dinner tables, or at least uh, cafe tables in France. I'm thinking of situationism and surrealism, of course. Um, and, And yet, at the very moment that conversation seems to be going the way of the dodo, um, podcasts were told at least are thriving. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think it's a. Uh, I, I frankly don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to some, and I've I've, I've been on been on a, a number. Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is that there's a definitely a tension between a lot of podcasts, including a lot of the popular podcasts, and this art of conversation that you're talking about, because a lot yeah. of them are pretty scripted. Uh, you yeah. know, a lot of them are historical or whatever, and they're just using the vehicle of the of the voice to present a text and present, you know, citations or whatever. And if there's if there's interviews, they're kind of carefully controlled, like you hear on on NPR or whatever. And that's to me not conversation, even though it takes the form of a back and forth sometimes. Uh, the the ones that I like to listen to are more improvised, more spontaneous, more conversational. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, no, that's a, that's a good that's a good part of it. But I think it's something about the intimacy of the voice is that people that that however, you know, deep you plunge into your screen, uh, yeah. there's a kind of distance there, a kind of a coldness. Um, and, you know, even with Twitter, even when you're passionate about the point of view and you're getting in some argument with some jerk off and over here and da, 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 there's still this kind of, uh, there's a sense, uh, there's a distance. And I think, you know, it's almost a McLuhan-esque answer. It's like, there's something about the oral, uh, A-U-R-A-L, that, that gives mm. us a space or a, it fills in something that is lacking in this world where our social connections are more and more mediated through you know, kind of chilling, sort of chilling technology or distancing technology. Uh, and, and I think people respond to that kind of emotionally, just that, you know, and, I'm, and, I, and I learned that partly from when people talking about like, no, this is why it's important to have really good sound quality uh, is because, you know, it's very intimate. You have these voices in your ear. And I'm like, God, yeah, that's really different than the kind of endless processing of, of, of the screen uh, through, through well, image yeah, and text. It- Yes, it is. A, let's call it oral sex. 
Um, there, there is a curious eroticism and eros of the ear, um, and it, it puts me in mind of the inexplicable until this very moment line in uh, the Iggy Pop song, Lust for Life, where he says, I'll get it in the ear again. Um, so, <laughs> so, so the ear does seem to be um, a kind of an eroticized orifice when you're listening, especially to radio. I remember my wife saying that while she found Rush Limbaugh's broadcasts abhorrent politically and ideologically, there's something plummy and orotund and richly resonant about his, his voice was perfectly EQ'd, and I think they used what audio engineers call a de-esser. I have very sibilant S's, as your um, listeners will um, soon glean, I imagine. Um, and, and, and his voice, whether it's this weird cognitive dissonance, because sometimes I'll listen to him just to kind of luxuriate in the black velvet of his tone, whereas, I mean, the actual content of his broadcast is anathema to me. Um, and, and so there is something peculiar going on there. And it's funny you bring up McLuhan, because that occurred to me while you were talking, just before you mentioned him, that his whole idea of, quote unquote, tribal resonance, to use kind of a problematic formulation, but his idea that um, the radio, he called it the tribal drum, especially under Joseph Goebbels, that it returns us to the resonant, mythic, reverberating space of pre-civilized storytelling. I do think there's something about that. And then, of course, the other thing is that it's a very peculiar medium in the sense that, unlike other social media, you feel as if you're being singularly, uniquely, individually addressed. I mean, especially if you're listening to an audio book with ear earbuds on. Um, you feel as if the reader is reading to you alone. And there really is an eros to that. It's a it's an extraordinarily intimate connection. You know, it's it really is um, like having someone whisper in your ear, which is, of course, you know, the closest you can get to sex without doing it. <laughs> as you can tell on on YouTube video, all those all those peculiar, okay, you're being touched and stroked with, you know, when they do that, that soft velvet voice thing. And then some oh, people guided, get that, that what is that ASPR or no, no, that weird, like some yeah. people get the shivers when they, when they hear the uh, people sort of describe things like that in the right kind of yeah. hushed, uh, hushed voice. So it's, it, it is interesting yeah. how we're, we're, we're actually tuning into these very different qualities of the voice. Because if you're, if you're used to just listening to radio, unless you're listening to, you know, some oddball alternative radio, most of the voices on conventional radio are, are, are within a pretty narrow range in terms of tone and timbre. And, you know, they shift over time. Like This American Life introduced a new kind of tone of, of sort of a progressive radio that then spread like a cancer through well, I, yeah, NPR. I do, and I, I, I really, I hate that, you know, that, that was like, oh yeah. God, why can you just go back to Edward Murrow? I mean, we could do better than this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hear that as hipster mumblecore. You know, every time I hear yeah. Ira 
Yeah. I'm forgetting his last name. So, Mark, um, I, uh, what about uh, your it, new it's book? It's so slurry and blurry. Um, I feel like I, I really need subtitles, and I want to reach <laughs> through the speaker grill and throttle the life out of him and you know send him to elocution school. Right, but, but now, this but... is actually a perfect segue to Gorey. I did want to mention um, Edward Gorey, at least in passing during our conversation, <laughs> and to say that um, – you mentioned the sort of narrow latitude of tone in conventional radio voices. It's interesting. Gorey, who, of course, always claimed to be asexual, or as he put it, neither one thing nor the other, um, or in his alternate quote, um, he said, I'm not much of anything, really, when pointedly asked if he was gay. He had the classic gay voice in a pre-Stonewall sense of that term. And there have been studies about what makes male voices, at least in American culture, sound quote-unquote gay. And linguists and audiologists are able to quantify it in a fairly um, granular way. So one of the things that reads socially as feminine or effeminate in a man's voice is a wide pitch range. Women tend, obviously these are gross generalizations, but in, in a socially constructed sense, um, the masculine voice is more monotonic, has a flatter affect and a very narrow, relatively narrow pitch range. The more macho you get when you hear cops at uh, one police plaza in New York City doing briefings for the press or Department of Defense spokespeople or you know, NFL quarterbacks being interviewed after the game, um, they, they tend to speak in this sort of tough guy monotone. And Gorey had this uh, as uh, the author of the uh, Stephen Schiff, the author of what's probably the best magazine profile of Edward Gorey, uh, The Tao of Nonsense, talks about how Gorey could go from maintain a girlish falsetto for minutes on end and then plunged, as he put it, into Eve Arden clogged sinus skepticism. Um, and Gorey had a very wide pitch range. He also had sort of a variety of different voices he would inhabit, almost as if he were doing impressions. Um, and he could sound utterly moribund and then, you know, as if he was high on whippets the next minute. And so he had a very wide pitch range. And uh, speaking of dipnosophy, as we were a moment ago, he was by all accounts an extraordinary conversationalist, Um, not Oscar Wildean in the sense that he didn't speak in an epigrammatic way, but he was a great, he was certainly influenced by Wilde, and he was a great one for Beaumont and Zinger's and his conversation, strangely enough, was peppered with Midwesternisms like Zippy and Gee Whiz and, um, and sort of wow. heavens, to, heavens to Betsyisms in that kind of David Lynchian Eagle Scout way. Um, but one, one of the things I really tried to capture in the chapter on his Cape Cod quote-unquote retirement near the end of his life and his, uh, after 1983 when George Balanchine, uh, the dance master and choreographer for the New York City Ballet, whom Gorey referred to as his god, uh, finally dropped off the twig. Gorey saw no reason to continue living in Manhattan. He had been a devotee of the ballet and had never missed a performance. So in 83, after Balanchine died, he moved to the Cape. Um, and 
his friendship with Alexander Theroux, the writer and brother of Paul Theroux, um, became rather more close. And Theroux, in his little memoir of their friendship, The Strange Case of Edward Gorey, gives us a taste of Gorey's conversation. And I quote that paragraph in full in the book, and it really is delicious. You get a very Boswellian sense of the sweepingly panoramic range of Gorey's Badinage, again, his table talk that, as I think Theroux said, I'm doing this from memory, something like he could discourse on who danced Giselle in 1923 to, you know, his favorite passages in the ancient uh, Japanese novel, Tale of Genji, to, um, you know, the aspect ratio of a scene from a Louis Fouillade film shot in 1914 to, you know, which among James Blish's novelizations of the Star Trek series (laughs) was, uh, you know, a tome for the ages. Um, So, you know, his his conversation was endlessly beguiling, and apparently, uh, you know, everyone who knew him um, found him enthralling as a conversationalist. And one of these um, sort of quip machines who, like J.G. Ballard in the research tome on Ballard, um, is is never at a loss for an utterly sui generis insight. And you wind him up, you know, prime the pump, and he generates fascinating opinions on virtually any subject under the sun. So that's one of my great regrets is that I never knew Gory, was never able to interview him, and was never able to get a taste of his table talk. Yeah, it's uh, it's really re- remarkable. It, ma- it makes me think of a, a number of things. I mean, one just the the sort of mode of 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 uh, obsession and cultural richness that uh, allows for that kind of range of reference reference and 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 allusion and uh, that kind of uh, excessive glee in the bric-a-brac of. Uh, cultural history, yeah. and he, you know, had that, and and again, I associate that mode partly when I started off talking about <clears throat> cultural criticism. Reading your book, I was thinking a lot about that. I go, what is this thing? What what or what is it? The way that I understood it, or that I uh, admired it, or or kind of modeled myself after it, and and certainly part of it is that capacity to be in the midst of any number of zones of cultural production and have mm-hmm. something to say, have some reference, have some way of linking, uh, you know, a, an ancient Greek text to, a, you know, a comic book to um, an architectural design motif. And, and you very much get that sense. And, and even though that's not necessarily what you see in his work, because it's mm-hmm. relatively constrained within a very specific Gory-esque universe, there's something about the obsessive quality that comes through the work that then you see carried over into people who are fans of the work that Mm -hmm. strikes me that there's something almost below the level of the specific references. There's just a certain kind of enthusiasm and willingness to play and willingness to twist and particularly the willingness to go high and low. That was one of the things that I really, uh, that I thought both said a lot about his intellectual range and and, and his passions, but also gave you a a sense of what's so singular about his work, which is that he's, you know, he's, he's early in the game, relatively, of playing 
highbrow, lowbrow in an in a non-ironic way. You know, he he's he's willing to wrestle with the greats in the in a canonized sense and to you know have a, a kind of classical dimension to some of his things, his love of ballet. But at the mm-hmm. same time, his love of of quote unquote low culture of of pop, of trash, of Star Trek, of later on of of trashy TV uh, when he was older. Uh, that that seemed very genuine and very and and and, and a, a one of the ways into his his work a kind of uh, surrealist sense of the 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 sparks that fly when there's a juxtaposition of of high and low or serious and 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 comic D- does that well, seem I think like you yeah, yeah I think you've put your finger on something uh, or you put your finger right on the nub of it and you certainly isolated a fascinating historical quirk about Gorey's work which very much chimes with his a then Harvard roommate, Frank O'Hara, later to be um, perhaps the standard bearer for the so-called New York School of Poetry, arguably alongside John Ashbery, which is that they they are proto-postmodernist. I would just hit the pause button for a second in mid-thought and say that I um, depart slightly from your sense of what the cornerstone of cultural criticism is as this thing we do, um, you seem to be talking, to my mind, more about postmodernism, per se. And you look at something like the MoMA show High Low, which was 1980, whatever it was, and, you know, where you get the canonization of George Harriman's Crazy Cat, you know, as a as a great work of American fine art, um, and, and the sort of valorization of lowbrow and middlebrow culture right alongside highbrow. Cultural criticism, to me, as a discourse and a genre in the popular press outside the academy um, is cultural studies with training wheels, you know, or it's it's cultural studies, the academic discourse, now gone, I guess, to the Burgess Shale of um, academic fads that have passed. Um, but, you know, when it's done in the popular arena for the popular press, it simply becomes uh, cultural criticism, to my mind. And it's also, crucially, the idea, I wouldn't say that the linchpin of it, for me at least, I mean, you know, this is what makes horse races, and perhaps your definition is different. But to me, the difference is is not so, or the essence of it is not so much that it leaps nimbly between high and low or flirts promiscuously with all different genres, but rather that it embraces in public intellectualism and the popular press what Donna Haraway in her Cyborg Manifesto calls, and negatively for her, not for me, um, the post-structuralist, quote-unquote, textualization of the world. So it's simply the application of literary theory and, and techniques of literary analysis from hermeneutics to Derridian deconstruction to everything in the world. And, and so it's sort of where Barthesian semiotics familiar from Barth's mythologies, a Derridian deconstruction, uh, you know, the cultural studies that in the academy sees, you know, um, homoerotic transgression under the bed, wherever it looks, uh, specifically in, uh, you know, Star Trek slash porn and so forth, where all those tributaries flow together 
that's where the cultural critic fishes. So for me, not so much a matter of um, legitimating low as well as high, but rather a willingness to read the world as a text. And so any um, cultural production is grist for the cultural critic's mill. And Barth, for me, is really the go-to guy here. He's He will analyze the French national dish, steak frites, wrestling, the Citroën, uh, right alongside the loftiest high culture text. So he's simply saying, um, we don't have to stop at the boundaries of the page. We can extend these techniques out into the world at large. There's a phrase that you, you, you refer to from I believe Paul Eluard that that was important to Gore. Oh yeah, um, I'm so glad you brought that up because that really is a skeleton key to Gory. Yeah, and, and it seems a skeleton key. To, and so I want to get to it. I want to get to Gory through that phrase, but I, I also want to finish. Well, first I'll say the phrase. I believe it's there is another world, but it's in this one, or but it is this one. I, I, I that there was two different versions of it. And I didn't hunt hunt it down. Maybe you can clarify. Um, yeah. But the, that idea also to me is a kind of way of thinking about cultural criticism, which is that you're not trying to get somewhere else. You're not trying to get to some abstract platonic truth or some philosophical system beneath the buzz and noise of everyday life. Uh, and yet you're not willing just to stay on the surface of, of everyday life. So that tension, mm-hmm. that sense of reading, of being able to bring to bear the, the, the critical intensity that one might bring to a poem towards everything around you, if you want, um, has a surrealist quality, at least to me. That was always what yeah. motivated me. Yeah. That's why I like... And I think not dissimilar from you, we came at it, I think, from different angles, but we've always been attracted to the excessive, the visionary, the macabre, the transgressive, not simply uh, finding another way of tracking, let's say, a, a, you know, a, a form of capitalism or even a subject kind of position or a kind of inherent social conflict, the way some critics are, you know, great, go, you know, go after it. But there's something about that, the weirdness that's in the everyday that I yeah. trace to surrealism that I feel is also part of what, at least the kind of cultural criticism that I was most moved by or, or consider myself to be participating in was about. So we can, I don't want, we have to keep talking about that because I do want to talk about Gory, but I do feel yeah. there's something in that phrase that really helps tune both the art and the criticism uh, in, in, a, in a way that, that opens up a lot of really interesting, juicy questions. Well, I think you're quite right, and and we are talking about Gory by talking about this phrase, and it is a wormhole into his universe, and I think a very well-chosen one on your part. Um, so, so, Paul Eluar, the quote, the definitive quote, um, frequently misquoted on the web, is, there is another world, but it's in this one, not it is this one, which is the misquote, but rather it's in this one. And it that's the... Uh, difference that makes a difference. It's a a meaningful distinction because it suggests, again, that you have to read between the lines of reality, that hiding in um, the 
the patterns of the carpet in the Overlook Hotel or behind the uh, yellow wallpaper lies another reality and that it's merely a perspectival shift, a parallax view that makes it pop out, you know, like Joseph Smith's tablets, you know, <laughs> the, the writing of God's fiery finger, you know, the angel Moroni or whatever stands up in bas-relief when you put the magic goggles on. And um, this, of course, relates to um, two things. One of them is... is um, uh, M.A. Cesar's a wife, uh, Suzanne Cesar, often talked about the marvelous, the one of the keystone surrealist notions um, formulated by Andre Breton, and she admonished um, practicing surrealists, among whose n- number I absolutely count myself, and Gorey certainly counted himself, um, to be, quote, uh, this is, I'm quoting from memory, ever on the alert for the marvelous with a capital M. Um, and it's this notion that whether you're in uh, Laol and in Paris, the um, uh, open air of marketplace that went back to the medieval ages or Walter Benjamin's arcades um, or, uh, you know, Ajay's photos of eerie, uncanny mannequins, you know, flashing their opalescent teeth at you through storefront windows in Paris, that the marvelous is always just around the corner. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you might suddenly find yourself face to face with it. So Gorey, you know, asked about his spiritual leanings, and I'll, I'll be very keen to hear what you, as a a scholar of comparative religion and spirituality, think about this. But when asked um, if he was at all spiritually inclined, Gori always said, well, if I'm anything, I'm a Taoist. Um, But when it came to life philosophies, he was absolutely a practicing surrealist and understood, like all true surrealists, that it the trivial popularization of surrealism as you know limp watches deliquescing on a beach in Cadiz um, is a complete uh, misunderstanding of surrealism. That it's a way of walking through the world and regarding the world, no less profound and profoundly defamiliarizing than say Heidegger. Uh, with which the surrealist gaze has a lot in common in its ability to instantly turn the banal and the mundane into the irretrievably uh, strange and the almost um, unendurably uncanny. So that is, to me, part of what's bundled up in that quote. And then it's crucial to remember you speak about – juxtapositions, and and that notion, for my money, is haunted by McLuhan's uh, famous catchphrase in The Medium is the Massage, that when information is rubbed against information, the results are startling and affective, um, which also always puts me in mind of Lautremont's famous surrealist um, a trope, the beautiful is the chance meeting on a dissecting table of an umbrella and a sewing machine. So Gorey only ever quoted the LUR quote paired with another quote by Raymond Cagnot, the Ulippo novelist, a member of the French uh, avant-garde school Ulippo. And the Cagnot quote is, and and this really is delicious, I love this, um, the world isn't what it seems, but it isn't anything else either.
<laughs> yeah, to me that <laughs> which, that's really which is sort of a, a Zen Cohen. Yeah, I was going to say that's really where you you come around to the to the the, the, the sort of Taoism or the Zen Tao or the Taoism that's in Zen or the Zen that's in Taoism. I mean, that's one of the, yeah. the funny things is because those kind of overlap in in, in compli- complicated ways, especially from a Western perspective. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was one because at first I was like the Taoism, I don't really see. Okay, I guess I see it. Da da da. And it's when you get to that point of. Uh, recognizing the immense strangeness of existence through yeah. the blessing of some oddity or some item that manages to break the the spell of the mundane, and yet at the same time there's no move or sense of another world of a transcendental order of a secret message of a, an order of the gods when you're able to ride that that surface that's both right. an aesthetic. And it's a way of moving through the world, which clearly Gory was was incredibly adept at as a, as a collector, as a, a film obsessive, as a ballet, a ballet uh, maniac, uh, as a cat lover, and and also as someone who who participated more in the occult than I thought. Granted, he was never a, a goofy believer. He was not someone who was yeah. you know charting his future through tea leaves. But he took things like the the I Ching. Uh, very seriously, he 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 was a member of the of the the PSR, the 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 psychic uh, society, uh, or, or at least was interested in certain yeah. psychic phenomena. And and in a way, he in that sense, he was carrying on that surrealist approach to the occult, which is that hey, this is whatever you know, we don't have to talk about ontology, we don't have to talk about the nature of reality. These are tools and techniques for massaging and shifting and and uh, opening up perspectives, resonances, odd juxtapositions as a way of transforming not just art, but life. Well, I think you're really onto something there. And let me turn the tables on you and play interviewer myself for a moment, because um, selfishly, I'd like to extract your wisdom on part of the book. I I was very, speaking of rubbing information against information, I wanted to rub uh, sort of the the blade of the book against the whetstone of your mind and and see uh, what the results were. If you'll indulge me, there's a passage here. I'd actually like to read so that your listeners have um, access to it if they don't yet have the book or haven't read it. Um, I, I write, Gory believed in the occult and in parapsychological phenomena, he said, but only insofar as they're, quote, indicative of the nature of things and the relations between them, unquote, as opposed to, quote, the more specific kind of fortune telling. In other words, he believed quote-unquote, in ironic quotes. For Gori, the tarot, astrology, palmistry, and the I Ching were just so many ways of, quote, bypassing the cause-and-effect rational world in which we normally try to function. By translating realities, we know it into a symbolic language. Systems of divination show you things, he wrote to a friend, which otherwise you might have much more trouble finding out. The ultimate goal was to internalize the logic of such systems, rendering them unnecessary. And then I go on to say that um, his was not a literal belief, but rather he used these um, 
hoary or antiquarian systems of divination as boreholes down to the deeper reality underlying the world as we perceive it, what Taoists call Li, the ever-changing, infinitely complex, ineffably meaningful order of nature, but that we can also read it as surrealist to the core if for Li we substitute the surrealist concept of the marvelous, the poetic mystery and uncanny beauty just beneath the surface of everyday life. So what do you as a, a scholar of religion, spirituality, and the occult make of Gori's use of these systems of divination, not actually to d divine, but as I say, to drill a borehole down to the Lee or to the marvelous as they can altern alternately be constructed? Well, thanks so much for, for pulling that out. I was, you know, as you might have guessed, one of my, one of the, my favorite parts uh, of the book, because it shows the way that you know, we could think about it as a legacy of surrealism in, in terms of really going deep into the occult and the esoteric, both, you know, in, in, in an almost scholarly way, you know, recovering uh, 17th century al alchemical diagrams and the lore of Gnosis. And if we expand the surrealist uh, sensibility to include a Bataille, who's, you know, sort of a fellow traveler, then uh, once mm -hmm. again, we find ourselves, you know, in this in this rich world. And yet there's this different flavor. There's this refusal towards a sort of, you know, hierarchy of spiritual values. There's a, a, a refusal of the of the idea of a of a true inherited tradition where you one becomes initiated in some sort of way. What initiated one was just the the facts of the everyday uh, transformed through this uh, capacity, which as Gory points out, it might begin with using an objective system like the Jing or the tarot deck, and we can talk about his own yeah. mock tarot deck in a bit, which is one of my favorite things of, of Gory, uh, that you might begin with a system like that, but the goal is to internalize not the system, but the capacity to be sensitive to you know, uh, eccentric and elliptical connections and resonances. Because in some right. ways, the pre-modern world out of which magic and divination come is a world, and, you know, even Foucault talked about this, it's a world of resemblances and resonances and correspondences. And you see that literally in the systems of magic that kind of predate and in some sense contribute to the rise of modern science. But as mm -hmm. science goes okay. along, we increasingly just uh, remove that domain uh, of association, of correspondences, of resonances. And so uh, uh, he recognizes that that's a, a living language. It's a way of being, but it doesn't necessarily imply anything about the world outside of nature. It's, it's really just an aspect of, of nature. And it really comes down to how one thinks about mystery. Like I'm one of those people thinks you get right down to the nature of existence and it's mysterious. It's enigmatic. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's wonderful and it's horrible. And yeah. that your reason is never going to map that. And I think one of the reasons now I understand more why people love Gory so much uh, and I and myself, I can see my own love increasing partly through the reading your biography and spending some more time is that he lets you in a way that doesn't hit you over the head, isn't going to you know, freak you out or make you, you know, like feel like you're, you're, you're converting to some other worldview. But he allows in the interstices of every day of, of, of magazines of of uh, or, you know, books that kids like or whatever in that world, he lets you see. Uh, 
that the the essentially enigmatic and mysterious nature of existence within which there are all of these connections and correspondences that don't make sense in a rational way and that there's something horrible about it death and loss and you know the haunting yeah. but it's yeah. not just horrible there's this also this mirthfulness or this charm and this wonder uh yeah so i was well, i go ahead I, i'm sorry no after you no, I was just saying I really appreciate how uh, uh, that dimension of the story and, again, how it comes through. And it, it makes me think of um, uh, the the book I didn't know about his work, The West Wing, which is the one without words in it. And it's and the images that I've seen, I didn't I haven't I don't have the thing itself, but I, I, I went online and saw all the images I could were, were profoundly enigmatic and marvelous and uncanny in a very specific way. It's like it's you recognize you're in the surrealist current that universe and yet there's something singular about it and that's such a marvelous thing about art when you're when you recognize that it's participating in some of the you know capital b big questions and yet yeah. there is this singular trace of a unique personality and a u- unique uh point of view well i think you're absolutely right and it's fascinating that you bring up the west wing and we should also put a pin in the subject of the phantod pack gory's um both ironic and yet very possibly ingenuous uh, attempt at a tarot deck of his own i'll be very curious to hear your thoughts on that because your knowledge of the tarot is obviously um, vastly deeper than mine which is glib and uh, glancing at best um, and I'll, I'll be curious to know if you read that as a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek postmodern uh, to touch on uh, a theme we were improvising on earlier gloss on the tarot or if you see it operating on two levels simultaneously that is uh, does Gory want to have his irony and eat it too is it also at some level a genuine attempt at a new tarot. But setting that aside for just a minute, um, for listeners unfamiliar with Gory's book, The West Wing, it is his so-called silent book. And uh, he himself, I think, used that phrase, and as well he should have as a devotee of silent movies. He was vastly learned in silent film and a rabid fan of the French director of the Edwardian period, Louis Fouillade, um, who did the incredible series of crime serials, Fantomas, starring the um, sort of anarcho-surrealist um, crim- master, criminal mastermind, Fantomas, who was retroactively embraced by the surrealist. Um, but Gori did uh, this book without a text, and it was his in-joke. It was a supposedly a sort of a gentle riposte to the dean of literary critics at that point, this is 1950-something, I'm forgetting the exact date of the book, Um, but uh, um, uh, Edmund Wilson had reviewed Gorey's first book, uh, The Unstrung Harp, in The New Yorker and several other of his early volumes, 
including the Listing Attic, uh, Gorey's second published book, but first written during his time at Harvard, a collection of particularly malignant, um, almost uh, penny-dreadful limericks that feature uh, themes of sort of predatory pedophilia and the horror of babies and um, a man yanking out his wife's teeth with a pair of pliers. It's really grim and grisly stuff. And when Gorey said it was his goal to make people um, feel uneasy, he wasn't kidding. And um, Edmund Wilson twitted him for the awkwardness of some of his rhyme schemes. And so Gorey thought, I'll get back at you. And he did a book without any text whatsoever and dedicated it to Edmund Wilson. <laughs> um, but, but what's fascinating about the book is that it manages to be um, both sort of broodingly spiritual in some sense. Gorey famously said in response to an interviewer who pointed out, you are a noted macabre of sorts, Gorey said something to the effect of, again, I'm quoting from memory, I really can't abide that word. I know it looks like that's what I'm doing, but I'm not really. And in the same way that, you know, he's sort of been embraced as the granddaddy of Goth, you know, Gorey is using um, the visual tropes of Victorian and Edwardian penny dreadfuls and shilling shockers and police gazettes and Gothic novels and cautionary tales for Victorian nurseries um, and, and, and abecedariums, you know, ABC books. He's using all of those different genres and literary tropes and aesthetics to often, on the one hand, parody um, the Eisenhower era that he lived in with all of its false pieties and sort of white picket fence hypocrisies. But he's also doing philosophy. He's also getting to grips at the risk of, of really overstating things or sort of balancing a boulder on a splinter because uh, you run the great risk in um, gory criticism of a um, of a critique that is so uh, overblown and portentous that the deliciously um, sort of thoughtful frivolity of Gorey's work collapses under the ponderousness of the exegesis. And so Gorey once said, all the best works of art are miniatures. And, you know, his lengthiest book is 30 pages. You could fit the text of most of his books in a thimble. You know, it's 100 words if it's that. And so the idea, it's like doing a doctoral dis- dissertation on, on a single limerick by Edward Lear. There, you have to have a sense of proportion. But And, and so it, it seems as if we're making extravagant, overblown, and insufferably gassy claims for Gorey when we say – He's wrestling with some of the deeper philosophical questions, but he really is. He's asking questions like, what is the meaning of life, and what happens after death, and is there a god? So, for example, something like the West Wing, which consists of panels of um, 
largely vacant rooms in what seems to be a haunted country manor, like the House on Haunted Hill by Shirley Jackson. Um, but they're given a Magritte-like spin, and Gorey did love Magritte's paintings. So one room inexplicably has a gargantuan boulder sitting on a Chippendale table. Another room has an ocean, uh, not just water, but an ocean up to the wainscoting, complete with ruffled waves. And then there is are, are all the creaky contraptions of Gothic fiction. There's a mummy tottering down a hallway and a candle floating in midair, you know, straight out of Disney's Haunted Mansion. Um, and so Gory is clearly saying something about death. He's clearly saying something about the uncanniness of unoccupied houses, about the secret lives of objects, you know, what happens in a room uh, when there's no one there to behold it. What about the psychic resonances and reverberations of, um, you know, gothic or grotesque acts that have taken place in, in, a, in a domicile, in a human habitation? And you might say, well, aren't you really overplaying this? But then I stumbled on an early interview with Gorey, and he says, the title of the book, the title the book does not have, but which is there in my mind, is, quote, the book of what is in the other world. And I thought, what a pretentious title. And that's clearly taken from a work of literature. Well, five minutes Googling revealed that, yes, it's taken from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And in fact, Gorey's personal library, which numbered some 20,000-odd volumes and was given to San Diego State University by Gorey's literary executor after Gorey's death, includes not one but several copies of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, suggesting that Gorey knew it well. So that, I think, helps argue the case that Gorey is up to something far deeper than we imagine. Yeah, very much so. And I do think that, that part of that, that language of image is one of the ways we, uh, you know, get to the, the lip of existence and stare beyond, um, that you, you recognize that none of your ideas are really going to help you very much here. And unless you just decide to turn away, which obviously a lot of people seem to be able to do, or at least pretend to be able to do, but, uh, those of us who are drawn to look, you know, not unlike those who are drawn to recognize how dark humans can be, um, which is an element of gory as well. I mean, we, we have that, you know, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it right now, the the, the uh, loathsome couple, you know, based on this like horrific uh, murder you know, and sexual abuse of children. Oh, the, Moor, the Moors murder. Yeah, which, you know. Which Throbbing Gristle was quite fond of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's there's an aspect of this whole thing that is about looking at what humans are capable of and what they have done, what they mm -hmm. do do. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's there's a relationship to that, to, to looking into the void and being willing to allow images to arise or to, or to approach them through images or through enigmas or through poetics uh, where you, you, you've abandoned all hope of, 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 of rational interpretations here, but you're still looking. You're still not averting your eyes. And there's, a, there's such charm to the way he doesn't avert his eyes uh, that that's yeah. a real marvel. Yeah, and Gorey himself was um, bifurcated. And I'll be curious to know from you if you 
think that this is the Taoist in him, because of course, um, the Tao in, in, in in which I'm almost entirely unlettered. I mean, I've struggled through the Tao Te Ching, um, but do not claim to understand it at anything more than a you know functional idiot's level. Um, but it, it it strikes me as sort of proto Deridian. It's giving the lie to, or problematizing, or challenging, or um, complexifying binary oppositions and hierarchical dualisms. It's it's always suggesting that each term in a dualism requires its opposite to fulfill itself. There's kind of a Lacanian sense of the self being constructed from fragments of the other. And Gori at some meta level, you know, in the in the deepest warp and woof of his personality, is always already paradoxical. I mean, just when you think you have him pegged, he does precisely the opposite. And at sometimes at the most trivial levels. I mean, a marvelous, to my mind, a really delicious and delightful example of this is that his work, one of the running jokes in his work, and there are many running jokes, almost on the level of Hitchcock's um, um, uh, appearances in his own movies, in Gory's, for, for devout Gory files who love a good mystery or who like Easter eggs, you can find them in Gory's work. For example, in nearly every one of his hundred-odd little books, with some exceptions, if you look hard enough, you will note in the corner of one panel somewhere in that book, um, a little white calling card lying on the ground or tucked somewhere in the scenery. And it becomes a kind of a parlor amusement for uh, devote uh, Goryites to, to find this. And uh, one of the Gory bloggers believes that that's actually a quote from one of Louis Fouillade's Fantomas serials in which the master uh, cr- criminal um, uh, villain hands a petrified Parisian society matron a silver salver with his calling card on it, but of course it's blank because he's a cipher, you know. Yeah, and so yeah. and this this is why the surrealists love Fantomas. But there are things like that in Gori and one of the running jokes is his imperishable detestation of fruitcakes. He abominated fruitcakes. And um, there are all these jokes, often in the gory postcards that he designed for the Gotham Book Mart, um, often pegged to Christmas or other holidays. There, There's a running joke about um, fruitcakes. And, and he, Gory once perfectly seriously suggested that there's only one fruitcake in the world, and it's endlessly re-gifted around humanity. <laughs> and so he has this implacable um, abhorrence of fruitcakes. And then, but near the end of his life, he was interviewed, and at one point, someone, the interviewer asked him, well, what is it with the fruitcakes? And he said, well, and, and this is very revealing about his, his edible struggles with both of his parents, but he said, my mother always made fruitcakes, and she toiled endlessly over them during the Christmas season and would always mail them to me at Harvard, and I would give them away. I detest fruitcakes. And you have to wonder which came first, his fraught relationship with his mother or his detestation of fruitcakes. But then in the same breath, he says, you know, I tried one recently. 
they're not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mark, you know, he's he's always doing things like that. Now, that's a trivial example, right? Right. But, but I mean, but his, his art and thought are filled with. He can turn on a dime and to re- return to Barth just because now you've stirred up the sediment of my otherwise uh, dozing brain, and um, Barth is on my mind. You know, Barth famously said in a way that's utterly unlike the analytical philosophers of the Anglo-American tradition who seem to cling to their ideas with white-knuckled tenacity, Barth, in a marvelously queer, quote-unquote, way, um, said, you know, I love ideas that are lightly held, that can be discarded in an instant, you know, which reminds us of McLuhan's famous quip to some angry interlocutor at an inter- at a lecture. Uh, you don't like that idea? I've got plenty more of them. <laughs> well, you know what, Mark? On that note, I think we're going to have to end it. We're, we've already gone a little long. I knew it would happen. Uh, Marvelous. It's one of the, the constraints of this uh, of of the show, but it's it's a, yep. it's a healthy one. Um, so, Mark, well, thanks th- so much for your interest. It's been delightful. Well, folks, you should check out uh, Born to be Posthumous, Derry's book on, uh, on Edward Gorey. And until next week, keep your minds open.